to the Lord in his goodness towards us. As we enter into the next decade, one of my, my dream, not my dream, the instruction of the Lord to me is to prepare the next generation, which is millennials and Gen Zs, to lead this church. Because um, this time, next decade, What can we do that's going to say that next year is not simply a new year or a new decade, it's a new season for our church? And I thought about doing something, because the saying is, if you do what you've always done, you'll have what you've always had. So I felt the Lord saying, ask three teenagers to minister the word on December 22nd. Because number one, you know, you really can't mess up the Christmas story. It's a safe subject. But number two, um, I've, I've watched these young men. One, I've actually seen his whole entire life. The others, when they were seven, eight. raised up 
godly children. We love Jesus. All of you to be commended. And so ministering to us in this order is uh, Brother Evan Tao. Brother Dozi Uma. And uh, Brother Ezra Bonas. The one thing that I, I, I really appreciate about how God led us to choose these three young men, uh, not simply because they're all, all their first names begin with E. But they represent the dream that I had for this church when I first started pastoring. I, I, I wanted to pastor a diverse church. I, I didn't want to pastor a black church. And I remember meeting Ed Stetzer twice. Some of you may have heard of him. He's really uh, the big uh, Christian Gallup poll guru. And I remember him saying how difficult it is for a black pastor to pastor a diverse church. And, and I'm glad that he was at least willing to admit that. But I believe with God, all things are possible. And, and God has blessed us with a very diverse church that even within our blackness, we have Africans and we have, now you can break down the Africans where there is Africans and the Nigerians are a whole other story. But, just messing with you, but, but we have people from all over, Japan and Puerto Rico and Santa, I mean, we just have people from all over the world and, and it's getting even more diverse by the grace of God because we want our church to look like heaven. We want our church to look like heaven. So these young men also represent the hope of our church future. So without any further ado, I'm not going to, no, I'm going to introduce them and they'll come up in this order. After one speaks, they'll hand off the mic to the other. I told them yesterday that you need to look at yourselves as a team. Amen. This is not, this is not a competition. We're, we're trying to hear the word of the Lord. And so uh, just so that you know who they are in this order, they're going to speak. Evan Tao, could you please stand, Evan, and kind of just... Dozy, could you please stand? And Ezra, could you please stand? So as each sits down and each stand up, please make sure you greet them and encourage them as they minister the word of the Lord. So without any further ado, the Reverend Doctor, no, okay. Evan Tao, God bless you, sir. Thank you, thank you very much. Okay, so I'm gonna tell a very familiar story right now. <clears throat> it is a cold and dark night in the Middle East. A lone donkey, ridden by a woman nine months pregnant and led by an exhausted and barefooted man, trudges through a pounding sandstorm. As the family, last to arrive, enters the borders of a small but crowded town at two in the morning, the donkey collapses on the deserted street. 
The couple stumbles from end to end, asking for charity for a penniless and expecting young couple. Mary's contractions intensify as Joseph pounds on the door of the last inn in town. Please, he moans, we have nowhere else to go. The innkeeper's heart is moved. He scratches his dusty beard and gruffly points a thumb to the dirty barn behind the inn, occupied by his livestock. Uh, where are my slides? <laughs> I'm supposed to have slides. That's okay. Uh, it isn't Brigham and Women's, but Mary and Joseph are grateful. Alone and friendless in this broken world, they deliver the child in the biting cold, his cries drowned out by the howling wind. His young parents wrap him in rags and lay him away in a manger, no crib for a bed. But what child is this? A star begins to glow brightly, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. Hark! All of a sudden, heavenly female voices from all directions sing glory to the newborn king. The animals take a sudden interest and crowd around to see the baby, mooing and buying to each other loquaciously. Shepherds from nearby pastures gather at the door, holding their hats and shaking hands. There's a little drummer boy for some reason. Three kings from Orient, dressed in opulent clothing, ride in on camels and fall to their knees, holding out expensive gifts to the shocked and bag-eyed couple. The barn is filled with light and visitors on this silent night, holy night. Meanwhile, baby Jesus observes regally as heaven and nature sing and his admirers press in closer for a first look at the savior of the world. Okay, that is my flowery, dramatic retelling of the Christmas story. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So the title of my sermon is The Virgin Misconception, Myths About the Nativity and What to Do With Them. And that, that Christmas story I just told you, the flowery, hyper-dramatic one, is the story we know and love because it's the story of an underdog, it's the story of overcoming hardship, it's the story of you know, faith amidst dire circumstances. But a lot of the details are shaky. Um, let's go to the actual text, shall we? That's the truth. That is some pictures there, right there. Wait, wait, that's, that's not a lot. Can we, wait, next slide, next slide, please. Can we see, yeah, wait. Yeah, uh, this isn't feeling like enough to me. Isn't there more in this? Here, ne next slide, next slide, there's gotta be more. Yeah, I just told like three paragraphs here and this is all we get? All right, this, this is like a couple sentences at best. See, M Matthew and Luke are very sparse. They're concise in their details. And um, everything that I just said is mostly added in. A lot of assumptions made here. Uh, we really get the bare bones of the story in the Bible, so let's get myth-busting. So, uh, can we take me to the next slide? I've got a list of, yeah, and then one more, yay. So, number one, the donkey. Um, Mary and Joseph had to travel 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and the image we usually have is of Mary riding the donkey and Joseph walking alongside. Um, but the text doesn't actually tell us anything about the way they traveled. Uh, to me, this donkey plan seems like a great way to get robbed. Most likely they traveled in a big group with a caravan or something. So, you know, a caravan of camels, like a whole train, that is probably a more accurate image. Number two, the inn. There's a mistranslation here, so I'm gonna give it a little grace. Um, the Greek word used for inn in uh, the Gospel of Luke is kataluma. This is more accurately translated to gesterum, as in the guest room in a house. And this makes sense because Joseph is going to his hometown of Bethlehem. Uh, yes, at Bethlehem. And so he probably has family there, and he's going to be staying with them instead of going to an inn. So Jesus was probably not born in a stable either because um, actually people just kept mangers in their living rooms because the animals would just walk around freely. And so a more likely picture we have here is of 
you know, Mary's in-laws shoving Joseph out of the house, where babies come in, they you know, bring, uh, drag in the dining table, deliver the baby with experienced hands right in the living room. That's probably uh, moralistic. And then the manger is the first thing they have on hand. And the timing is another uh, pretty important aspect. Um, in the story we usually have, everything happens on the same night. Like in our nativity scenes, we have the shepherds, the wise men, the animals, the little drummer boy, all in the same, uh, same place, same time. Um, but it really wasn't that way. In fact, uh, Mary and Joseph didn't even deliver the baby on the same night they arrived. Uh, again, this is more accurate, uh, accurately seen in the Greek, where Mary and Joseph come in, stay a little while, and then Jesus is ready to be born. There's nothing about a little drummer boy, period. And the three kings, um, these are probably very uh, mythologized, maybe the most mythologized. Um, both the adjective and the noun in this phrase are wrong. We don't know if there were three. There were three gifts, but the Bible doesn't tell us anything about the number. Um, they've actually got this whole story that they've created, seemingly out of thin air, where they've got names. One comes from Europe, one comes from Asia, one comes from Africa, and they all like converge in the Middle East. Somebody came up with that. I'm, Kind of pretty creative, but not really biblically accurate at all. And they're not kings either. They're not kings. They are wise men. They are scholars. Uh, they observe the stars. They're like college professors, it would be a more accurate term. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, they also didn't show up the same night, but they probably showed up like months or years after um, Jesus was born, the star came in. So Jesus is probably crawling by the time they handed those gifts to him. All right, all right. You get the point. There's, there's, there's a lot. Can we have the next slide? Thank you. So the nativity story has been exaggerated and dramatized and just had things plain added to it over the generations. It's like kind of a tall tale, you know, the fish. It was this big. Uh, I sort of have to blame the old Christmas hymns, Silent Night, Way in a Manger, that kind of um, make this whole narrative. Um, and, I mean, the reason why we do this is because we want the story to seem dramatic, because Jesus was God, so his birth must have been supernatural and uh, insane and miraculous. But when we make it um, seem mythical, we're actually losing the main point of the whole Christmas story, the pièce de résistance, as that the word became flesh and came down as this little baby so he could be relatable to us, not so he would be untouchable, distant, far away, mythical, like the story of the birth we have. But rather, his birth should be relatable. It's a concrete story. It's like the family anecdote that gets handed down over the generations. And it's not a fairy tale, and it's not an ancient fable. Uh, despite all the movie recreations, despite the princess pageants, and despite the nativity scenes and everything, uh, the main point of this Christmas story that we have to remember is that this is a real story with real people it's, I mean, it's a history documentary, not a radio drama. The details matter. So make sure you really know this story, not the distorted version. Thank you.
Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, church. I want to thank Bishop and Lady Carmen for giving me the opportunity to speak today. It's truly an honor and a privilege to share the word of God with you. And I know that God will speak through me today. So let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would speak through me today, that you would speak to your people, that it would not be me speaking my own words, but that you would use me only as a microphone to speak through your people, Lord God. I ask that hearts would be changed today, that hearts be moved today, Lord God, and that people would not be the same once they leave this church. In your mighty name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them in the inn. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. The title of my message today is Stay in Your Manger. Stay in Your Manger. So I want to start out with a question for all of you. What did the manger that Jesus was born in look like? Describe it. Just put a hand up. Straws. Anyone else? Wood. Wood. All right. What was the general scene like? What was the mood of the scene? It's not a deep question. <laughs> Smelly. Smelly. Dirty. Not lavish. Not lavish. So we can all agree it was a relatively bad scene. Yet, as you can see in the next slide, the portrayal of the birth of Jesus is always far too nice. This isn't the truth. The truth is the next slide. You see, so many times in popular culture, the portrayal of Jesus is just so glamorous. You know, there's light shining through, it's in a barn, there are animals surrounding looking all happy. Mary looks at... <laughs> Mary looks as joyful as anyone has ever looked while giving birth. It's <laughs> it just it seems like a wonderful time. But that's not the truth. This is the truth. That Jesus was born in a cold, dark, disgusting place, filled with animals and bodily waste. How would we feel if we were Mary in this situation? We're a teenager charged by the most powerful being in the universe to give birth to the savior of the world. And he doesn't put us in a mansion. 
He doesn't put us in an inn with midwives. He puts us in a manger designed for animals and the lowest of the low. How would we feel? We would be angry. We would be mad at God. We would be upset. And perhaps most importantly, we would be desperately praying for God to end our suffering in the manger and to just let us into the inn. Now, what if I told you that each and every one of us are in Mary's shoes? So many of us are in our manger right now where it's smelly and it's cold and it's dark and it's unfair that you're there but you're still there and you're praying to God desperately for him to let you out but you're still there. But the saving grace is that each and every one of us are children of God. And because of that, we all have a will and a purpose for our lives. God didn't make you by accident. He has a, per a perfect purpose for you, and he's going to achieve that. But the only place that can happen is in your manger. So how do I know the only place it can happen is in your manger? Well, it all circles back to the birth of Jesus. If you remember what I said earlier, King Herod wanted to kill baby Jesus, desperately. Now, I want you to imagine if Mary had gotten her wish and she was able to give birth in the inn. She would have given birth peacefully and comfortably, baby Jesus would have been born, and the angel would have come to them and alerted that King Herod was on their way. They would have left, of course, but this time they wouldn't have been alone in the secluded inn. There would have been midwives and innkeepers there. Both of them would have been subjects of King Herod, their loyalties would have been to the king over their guest. In other words, had King Herod come to the inn asking for the whereabouts of baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary, they would have given them up almost instantly. In other words, had Mary gotten her wish, the savior of the world could have been killed. At the end of the day, God knows best. He knows what's best for your life. He's going to get the best out of you. But again, the only place it can happen is in your manger. Now, I have one last example, and this is my final point. Um, if you go to the next slide. How many of you know who this person is? <laughs> I, I don't see a single hand. <laughs> How many of you know who the next person is? <laughs> That's what I thought. So why am I showing you these two people? Well, the first person I showed you, his name is Johnny Flynn, by the way. He went exactly one pick before Steph Curry in the 2009 NBA draft. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm an avid Warriors fan, and while I was researching this, I found out that many scouts and NBA experts were advising the Warriors to move out of their position so that they can get who they thought was the better player in Johnny Flynn. They thought that should the Warriors stay in their current position, they would never be able to excel, they would never be able to succeed, they would never be able to win. Well, Johnny Flynn only lasted two years in the NBA. And with two MVPs and three championships for the Warriors, I think the results speak for themselves. If, ladies and gentlemen, if there's anything you take from my message, it's to be like the Warriors. Stay in your position. Keep the faith. Believe that God has something in store for you in your position. I know there are going to be experts that are going to tell you that you're not going to be able to, to succeed where you are. There are going to be scouts that are telling you that you'll never be able to do it. 
that God, that God doesn't have something in store for you where you are. But you have to believe. You have to keep the faith. You have to stay in your position. You have to stay in your manger. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for bringing us all together today. And I thank you for bringing all these people here to hear my message. And I pray that as they go, as, as, that during this Christmas season and going into the new year, that they would keep the faith, that you would give your, your people a spirit of patience, a spirit of steadfastness, so that they would wait before you for the, for the, perfect plan, the perfect purpose you have in store for them. You have amazing things in store for your people, and they're going to see them they're going to see them soon. But I thank you, Lord God, for what you're going to do in their lives as long as they stay in their mangers. Amen. Morning. So, hard message to follow. All right. Now, in three days, it's going to be one of my favorite days of the year because I love Christmas. During the month of December, people go absolutely nuts for the gift-giving craze. And I'm also a big fan of gifts. Um, for those of you who are obsessed with this type of thing, my love language is gifts. <laughs> Although the date of his actual birth is disputed, um, Christmas is the time of year that we celebrate Jesus' birthday. We do this, as you know, by celebrating a fat old man in a red jumpsuit. <laughs> Seriously, if we're going to throw Jesus a birthday party, we might want to think about how birthdays are normally celebrated. It's a common tradition in our culture to get people gifts for their birthday, and I know that I like that on my birthday. I especially like it and feel celebrated when someone gets me just the right gift. When I was three, that would be like some kind of Thomas train. Um, today, I would not feel upset if someone celebrated me with a pair of AirPods. So, so, for Jesus' birthday, we might think about getting him gifts instead of getting each other gifts. There are lots of ways to do that. In my family, since we think of ourselves as guests at Jesus' birthday party, we get goodie bags. They look a lot like stockings. And then we get Jesus lots of gifts that we think he will love. You might be thinking, well, that sounds great, Ezra, but how can I do that? And that's a good question. I know very few people who always know what God wants them to do. Well, I have some good news for you. It turns out, in the Bible, Jesus gives us his Christmas list. 
But instead of mailing it to the North Pole, he put it in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear that list now. Since Bishop normally chooses a kid to read the scripture, I chose someone on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> Elder Roy, could you please come up? At least he didn't call me elderly, Roy. <laughs> when I got his email asking me, I said, wow, isn't this turnaround? Because when we used to ask them to read the scriptures, pretty much the distance <laughs> was the same. <laughs> But on a serious note, as I'm about to read the scriptures, um, the thought that came to me was, wow, you know what? When we used to ask them to read the scriptures, our perspective was like this, and now my perspective is like this. And I'm asking, I'm forced to have a different perspective on these young men. And I implore you to have a different perspective. Don't just see them as the young lads that grew up in church, but see them truly as men of God. Amen. Now I'll do my job. Matthew 25, verses 35 through 40. In the NIV, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did you see, excuse me, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. All right, thank you. Oh, wait, Elderoy, don't forget, it pays to come to church. When you see that list, when you see that list, imagine Jesus sitting down on your lap and plainly saying what he wants. 
Instead of looking for the guy in the jumpsuit, you are the one in the jumpsuit. Jesus says that he wants us to feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty. He wants us to house the homeless, to clothe the naked. He invites us to look after the sick and to visit the prisoner. That's his Christmas list. He doesn't need us to do this. If we don't proclaim his good news, he says elsewhere he can get the rocks to do it. But that is not his plan. We are his plan. He wants us to frill his wish list. And when we do, it really is a party. And that party is good news for everyone. The poor, the hungry, the sick, and prisoners. They all get to come to the party. And if you're not currently one of those people, they are your ticket in. Their birthday boy is holding his party in jail cells and homeless shelters all around the world. If you want to party with Jesus, you have to find your way there, legally. Again, maybe that sounds hard to imagine. A party with Jesus in a prison? Each year, our family gives away money during Advent. We get to send money to the parties happening as close as the Salvation Army and as far away as Ghana. And I really love that. But this year, when I was getting ready for this sermon, my mom's friend listened to me and said, but Ezra, that's what your parents do. What's Jesus inviting you to do for his birthday? <laughs> Giving away money is easy. Giving away your parents' money is really easy. Where is the party that Jesus wants you to attend? People having parties don't want you to just send them a gift. They want you to show up. Jesus' deeper invitation is to be with the least of these, because that's where Jesus is. Wow, that really stopped me. I have loved giving Jesus gifts with my parents' money. But what did Jesus want from me this Christmas? Who is Jesus inviting me to be with because Jesus was already with them? As I prayed about it, God gave me three invitations to Jesus' parties here in Cambridge. The first one was easy. I had worked all year and I hadn't tithed. I heard loud and clear that I needed to tithe so I figured out how much money I had earned and split my tithe money between PT and the Salvation Army. Like I said, that one was easy. The other two invitations were harder. Those invitations were for me to extend myself to others. Last Sunday, Bishop came to our Sunday school class and gave us Dunkin' Donuts gift cards to take someone out to eat. I decided to invite an older person from our church. I knew that he was lonely sometimes, and I thought it would be nice to go out with him. Truthfully, I thought that I would be nice for taking him out, but it wasn't like that. He had such interesting stories, and I could tell that he wanted to bless me with them. We had a great time, and I hope we get to do it more. Finally, I felt called to write an email to a teacher of mine. I'm not sure what you all know about the trouble we've had in Cambridge recently at the high school, but my first period teacher made a very racist remark during a school committee meeting. He hasn't come back to school since then, and from a justice perspective, he is rightfully despised by much of the community. 
I didn't want to, but I heard God ask me to send him an email based on love and mercy. The email called him out for what he did, but it also invited him back into our community. I told him that what he did was forgivable and that we hoped he would repent and apologize. That was hard to do because I was mad at him. But I know that Jesus is with my teacher right now because my teacher is lost. So I joined Jesus and told my teacher that I hoped he would be reconciled with the community. This is our duty, to reach out to those who are not often reached out to. But it is more than that. It is our privilege to be at the party with Jesus. Dorothy Day, a great Catholic writer, said it this way. For a total Christian, the goad of duty is not needed, always prodding one to perform this or that good deed. It is not a duty to help Christ. It is a privilege. We offer hospitality to Christ in the commonplace, frail, ordinary humanity, not for the sake of humanity, not because these people remind us of Christ, but because they are Christ. When I thought I was giving Jesus gifts, he was giving me himself. And no matter what I get on Christmas morning, and I really am hoping for those AirPods, <laughs> it won't mean as much to me or be as fun as the party I've had this week with the birthday boy himself. Amen. Amen.